Totally lost track of time. I completely, absolutely apologize for losing track of time. I honestly thought it was like 1130. And then I look at the clock and, oh my God, it's two minutes to one. I better get started. I want to, uh, before we really do anything else today, I, I want, I promised I would give uh, a nice shout out to a community. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, if you're looking for a writing community that's, uh, fairly diverse and fairly well populated and incredibly active, often more active than I probably am aware of or give it credit for, then please consider Story Valley. Uh, I'm going to include a link to it in the YouTube description. And when this goes out as a podcast, I'll stick it in the podcast notes as well. Uh, they just celebrated their anniversary uh, not about a week ago. There's always a thing going on. There's always people talking, always writing happening, always lessons to be learned, tons and tons of stuff. If you're looking for a writing community online, uh, go check out Story Valley. They have not sponsored or paid for anything. Um, I'm doing this as a favor. I think you'll really, really find something good there if you give it a try. Link in the description, link in the podcast notes. Um, other than that... Let's uh, let's get let's get going, right? Sounds good. Sounds real good. Here we go. All right. Just remember what I've taught you. So, yeah, here we are again for another Writer's Chat. I continue to be John, the guy who's going to help you write better. I want to thank you for being here. Thank you so super-de-duper much. It's absolutely wonderful to be back. And if you have no idea what this is, uh, this is the Writer's Chat, where I am going to answer 13 questions from 13 uh, people who asked different things all across social media. I've corralled them and I've got answers, but first and foremost, we have to do a more proper intro, I realize. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, enthusiasts, soda drinkers, time management experts, anybody who can appreciate a good lewd or a good nude, um, anybody who's ever had to scramble around looking for a pen only to realize there's one like two inches away, people who lose their car keys even though they're in their hand, Anybody who's ever lost money and then wondered where it was only to find it days or weeks later in a pair of pants you didn't expect to find it in. Anybody who's struggled to get back on the riding horse after some time off. Anyone absolutely positively tired of spam text messages telling you about confirmed bookings or special links that only you can click. And most importantly, the comrades. Hi, everybody. We're here. It's go time. 
we got questions. I got answers. Plus the answers of anybody who's here in chat today. Hello, chat. It's good to see you. I, I hope you enjoy this. And um, I'm I'm feeling pretty good. It's been a busy day. I've been talking all morning. So if my voice sounds a little scratchy, it's because I've been talking now for, let's see, it's 1 p.m. Eastern. I've been going for about five hours. So this should be delightful on my voice because there's still more talking to do when I'm done. But first and foremost, we have questions for today. Here we go. Question number one, at what point should I start thinking about the cover of my book? Well, okay, there's no exact time to start thinking. I mean, obviously, yes, when the book is done, you don't really have anything else to do but think about your cover. But you can start thinking about that cover pretty early. My advice to you would be to start thinking about it after your first draft, not before, not during your first draft. And, and here's why. Because over the course of that first draft, you're still figuring out what the hell your idea is. You're still working out what's going on and what's in the story and what's not in the story. You're thinking about a title, maybe. Maybe you're not thinking about a title at all. And if you start nailing down a cover, even though it's a really fantastic distraction, a nice piece of daydreaming, something really artsy you can lose yourself in as you space out when you should be writing, you can, you can lose yourself thinking about a cover start thinking about it too early in the process and you will lock yourself into something that might not come true or might not pay off later. If you think your cover is going in one direction and then you find out in the middle of the first draft or in the late first draft that the story is going in a completely different direction, but you really planned to have like a big ass tree and some people on the cover. And now all of a sudden the tree and the people are gone because the book's going somewhere else. It can be frustrating. So my advice technically professionally Figure out your cover loosely and roughly at the end of your first draft before you get into the second draft. Because again, over the course of the second draft, that book can still change. That book is still figuring out how best to be a book. You're still making decisions about what goes in and what, what isn't and what works and what doesn't. So while it's tempting to lose yourself into all different kinds of fantasy about, oh, it would be cool if I had this cover, or oh, I like art like that, doing it too soon can take us away from where we need to be, which is putting words on the page. Great first question. Good opening. I'm going to go close this door to keep the cat out, and then uh, we'll do question number two. Two seconds, please. Hang on. I'm coming. Wait, wait. I'm closing the door. I'll be right there. All right, here we go. Oh, question two. How can I build a better antagonist without using a magic item or a single power to defeat them? And what, what that means is um, there's some, you know, the idea of like everybody has a glowing weakness. Ah, I'm vulnerable to, you know, bullets. My only weakness. How did you know I'm vulnerable to a space rock or this magic sword or this one spell that's only been cast one time in the last thousand years? It's all right. Like, it's not the end of the world if your story has that. It's okay. Really and truly, it's all right. But when story after story has it, when it, it doesn't really seem to change beyond like, well, it's a magic spell, but my magic spell includes glitter or something, or it's always a magic item and it's always the magic item the hero has, or it's always this one superpower that never really seems to go anywhere except it's great for defeating the monster, it can get tired quickly and the reader can tune out. 
you want to get away from tropes like that where possible, not because it's, you know, bad to do them. It's a fine, it's a trope, it's whatever, but because you think, or you know, you can deliver more than just, I will make a magic sword and the magic sword will defeat the bad guy. Yawn stretch. What you want to look at is I'm an antagonist that doesn't have a singular weakness, but instead has multiple weaknesses. You know, we, we talk about comic book villains and so often they're, you know, just mortal people or even movie villains. They're mortal people who are often defeated by like, you know, one single thing, like they're caught in court or they're, they're trapped by their own words and double-crossed or something. But they're still people. You could shoot them. You could poison them. You could drown them, light them on fire, stab them, whatever. Like, you have multiple ways of defeating a lot of antagonists, and that doesn't deprive the antagonist of anything special. It's not like the antagonist is only cool because they're hard to kill. Even the most, like, badass, entrenched villains have multiple methods of defeat. Vampires, werewolves, supernatural creatures often have multiple avenues. It's just the story highlights one because... The author doesn't really want to explore multiple things. They just pick one. You want to build your antagonist such that the method they're defeated by does not outshine or overwhelm the fact that they will be defeated. So if we have our villain and we would normally dedicate them to, you know, being 1 million percent protected except for their literal Achilles heel... Well, that's not really a very encouraging villain because everything else we do against them until we realize the Achilles heel is the issue, everything else we do is wasted and it's dissatisfying for the reader to discover that. So we have this super great villain who like lives in a fortified tower behind bulletproof screens with anti-magic spells and they get everything always brought to them. There's no real way to infiltrate a lot of writers will nervously see this as like, well, look how cool it is. Like our hero has to be this much of a badass, like this, this tall to ride the ride because of all the obstacles we put in their way. And those villain bells and whistles are not obstacles. Those villain bells and whistles are kind of like bullshit hurdles. They're not really obstacles because the difference between a story obstacle and a character detail is that a story obstacle is going to change the protagonist. The protagonist has to do something, risk something, or lose something, or change some nature of who they are in order to overcome it. Like the guy who has to climb up the side of the building because there's only one way in, um, he, he has to lose, let's say, some of his gear that he's reliant on because that's the challenge of this obstacle. But if your villain is just invulnerable to X and Y and Z and Q and M and also F, that's those aren't obstacles. Those are annoying details because you don't want your villain to get their feelings hurt or you don't want their villain to be so easily defeated. But again, I want to remind you, you invented the villain. And the fact that the villain gets defeated is going to be more important than the method by which they are defeated because that method is just cleverness. Ah, they said a thing and that was their undoing or they didn't know they were being recorded. Ha ha, I've written a, a good scene. The method there is nice and interesting and it's hopefully possibly one part of what's going to stick out for the reader, but it's also the overall fact that they, the antagonist was defeated. 
So you build your better antagonist by considering what their plan is. What is it they're trying to do and accomplish? And how are they going about trying to do or accomplish it? And then you want to take a look at how you're planning on defeating them. Okay, so the evil CEO wants to bulldoze the orphanage. That's what they're doing. And how are they doing it? They're buying up all the property on the block around it, and they're bulldozing it so that the, the orphanage is the last thing standing. Now, we don't want to have like our CEO defeated by like a first-level firebolt spell because that would be weird and strange given our story setup. But we also don't want our villain defeated too easily because that makes the challenge of our story seem weak. But we want to set up our, our thing so that our villain undoes it himself. That's how, that's what we want as a story. So how would we do that? We're going to get the villain you know, to sort of uh, commit a crime on tape and then send it to the media and let pressure uh, defeat them rather than like all the kids of the orphanage getting together and like curb stomping the CEO. You want to do that by considering the plan, considering the method by which they'll be stopped, and considering the end result you want after they're stopped, and then working backwards to, to sort of divine what it would be to stop them. Well, we want the CEO to get hauled off to jail or lambasted in the press. How would we go about doing that? We would need to tarnish their personal record. How would we do that? And then we work backwards again and again, avoiding the solutions of, well, then we pull out the magic sword or then we use, you know, that kid's telepathic powers. We work our way through reasonable solutions backwards from the end result to figure out how we can better construct the antagonist along the course of the whole story in order to develop a more satisfying antagonist that isn't reliant on quick, get the magic bullet. We want to do more than that, which means we need to develop more opportunities and options, more things that the character needs to overcome, but not extra bullshit powers. Oh, he's wearing a bulletproof suit. That is less interesting than, well, we know he's got five different bodyguards and a lawyer, so we'll need to contend with each of them before we get there. Create more obstacles rather than bells and whistles, and your antagonist will be a much more compelling, interesting overall challenge for your story great question love it so much also i just want to point out some of that's going to be specific and personal to what you're writing you addressing your villain is going to be different than me addressing mine even though we're both writing i don't know sorry we are both writing why is that sliding that way i wanted to move this down hang on there we go there that's better um Creating a more compelling villain is situational. It depends on what you're writing. Some villains, yeah, are best defeated by a singular thing, by a, you know, oh, they do have a magic weakness, and let's use it even though it's, you know, whatever it is. Again, not the end of the world, and some of this is going to be situational. But if I can get you thinking about your antagonist as having more dimensions, I don't mean sympathy. I mean more to them in their antagonism than just, I'm a bad guy doing bad guy things. Uh, you'll end up with a more satisfying conclusion overall. On we go. Question number three, as I reach for my cup of tea. Question number three, why do unpublished writers jump genres so often? Okay, buckle up. We're going to go places with this answer. 
All right. <clears throat> Unpublished writers jump genres because they're indecisive and fearful. They're indecisive uh, in a lot of cases because they're trying to figure out that they only want to write what's popular, what's going to work, what's going to sell well. Or they're indecisive because they like so many things and they just can't narrow it down. And again, on some level, they're still trying to figure out what thing is best, what thing really works, what thing you know is going to get the most eyes on them so that they'll be the most successful because they're only fundamentally measuring the idea of success against the size of the reception as opposed to the reception itself. Because honestly, if 10 people give you, you know, crickets in terms of feedback, but one person raves about it for days, how do you judge which response is better? Is it just the fact that there are 10 people who said very little or who were about the whole thing? Or is it the one person who's raving about, oh my God, I'm going to buy every book you write for life? Thinking about your ending, thinking about the way you're shaping your uh, success or what your end result looks like often starts when you haven't even really begun. People spend more time fantasizing about the end result or the next 35 steps instead of the first three steps because the first three steps are scary. Have an idea, organize it, start writing it. That's harder and tougher to do because it's concrete because you'll have tangible stuff there. It's hard to daydream about that because it'll be on the page or thanks to procrastination, fear, or anxiety, it won't be on the page. So what you're left with and what you have instead is a situation where they're going to always look for the new thing. They're always going to look for what's going to be compelling and interesting and what's holding their attention today. Part of that's indecision. Part of that is reaching for you know, anything. But part of that is also a sense of it's only good as long as I'm enthused by it. It's only good as long as it's interesting to me and it, what interests me changes on a whim, on any given day. That attitude is so, like, super pervasive, it's it's kind of a pain in the ass. So they jump genre. Oh, because I could do this. Oh, I could do that. I could do this. I could do that. It, it doesn't matter that you could do 45 things. We all could do 45 things. It's a matter of I'm going to do this one thing because I picked it and I'm going to do it as best I can as much as I can for as long as I can. Because again, not all stories and not all ideas are going to go the full distance. Some stories are going to burn out because the story doesn't have enough stuff or it's a, it's too challenging a setup. You've decided I'm going to write second person legal thriller fiction and second person with the idea you have is just not a good fit. And it only really seems to go about 45,000 words before you're like, I'm done with this. That's okay. But most of the time, the thing motivating all the jumping and the hopscotching and the swapping of this and the doing of that is fear. Fear that they'll struggle. Fear that the thing they pick won't be the right thing. Fear that what they pick will be hard. Fear that if they pick a thing and lock into it, all those daydreams and all that other stuff stops being possible because they'll be presented with this thing that as a fantasy is great. Oh, man, it's so much fun to daydream about what it's going to be like to be successful. It's going to be so great to daydream about what it's like to have the thing done. But when I stop and I think about doing the doing the stuff, doing the writing, all of a sudden it turns not fun and it becomes, you know, like a job. And I hate to tell you this, it is a job. But it's more fun to stay abstract. It's more fun to have it be a fantasy. 
So rather than exert some discipline and understand that you can still jump genres all you want, but it's a matter of exploring it and figuring out and working on it rather than just jumping for the sake of jumping. A lot of people just jump to chase momentary enthusiasm and avoid dealing with that fear or avoid dealing with those expectations or avoid dealing with that sense of like, I don't know if I'm good enoughness. So they jump around a lot. I wish they wouldn't. I wish they'd just try and be willing to fuck up and be willing to make mistakes and then get better and get humbled and get educated and, and get excited and try again and again and again and ultimately get where they're going to go rather than think about the daydreams and hope that they never get their shoes messy on the way towards success. That's why I think they do it. Great question. Now, I'm looking at chat. And I'm the only one here. It's me and the mod bot. So I don't know if there actually is anybody here because uh, this stuff never really like syncs up. It says I might have, you know, five people watching. And in fact, I have one. So I, I have no idea what's going on right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over there and cough really loud because there's something in the back of my throat. So enjoy this ad for those of you on the podcast feed. Um, I don't know, twiddle your thumbs or something. I'll be right back. Let's press this button and see what happens. Nothing happened. Fucking nothing happened. Okay, well, I'm still going to cough, so hang on a minute. All right, we're back. I can't believe nothing. Like I pressed the button and the little like warning thing popped up on my on my little screen here. I, I don't know why that's fucked. So I will unfuck that later. Anyway, thanks for letting me cough for a hot second. I got to drink more water. Um, I'm all it's all dry in here today. I got to hydrate better. Um, yes. Oh, my God. There is someone here. That is fantastic. Thank you for being here. The tea today is just English breakfast. Uh, I have like a mouthful left and then I've got bottles of water to go through because I did not do a great job hydrating despite all the talking I'm doing. Um, but yeah, it's been good. I hope you're doing well. Last week I was at Gen Con and I, all I could think about while I was watching a million people go by and how much I missed being a part of that atmosphere and that energy all I could think about was, man, I would love to take some of that and bottle it up and then bring it over here to a stream. So I hope I'm I'm in the midst of doing that because, God, I really missed that. I super didn't. I, I missed chat. I missed streaming. I missed, you know, just doing more than talking to the cat as I podcast about all the things I podcast about. And I want to note this. There was no, I'm recording this on Tuesday. There was no podcast today because I... I thought I saved the file and I didn't. My bad. Podcast will resume tomorrow without problem. So, okay. Shall we go on to the next question? Have I done enough? Yeah, let's go. Question number four. Why am I procrastinating again on this book? Well, I don't know. Let me give you a few reasons why people procrastinate. One, uh, they don't know what to do next. So they're waiting for something. They're waiting for inspiration. They're waiting for 
an explanation. They're waiting for a sign. They're waiting for something. Some external factor is going to appear like the fucking book fairy and give them motivation enough to continue. Or maybe you're procrastinating because the next thing you're supposed to be doing is very scary to you, like finishing your book or querying or writing the difficult chapter with the scene you've never written before or writing the climax or writing a sex scene or just writing dialogue that doesn't sound like super cheesy when you say it out loud. You're afraid of whatever the next step is. And the solution for that, by the way, because there is no book fairy. I don't know if you know this. Uh, the solution for that kind of procrastination is just start and write it as badly as you can. Like, just just write anything. Let it be hot garbage. Write it as shittily as possible. Is shittily a word? I've just made it a word. Write it bad. Write it like super bad news bears, knowing that you can always go back later and fix it. And I guarantee you that for 80% of all the stuff you swear is terrible and the worst, it's probably fine. It's probably okay. And you've just inflated it in your head. But a lot of people procrastinate because the thing they're about to do is scary and they don't know if they're going to do it right. And they only want to do it right as if that's somehow a thing in making art. They only want to do it perfect because they don't want to do it more than once or they don't want it to be a struggle. Again, it's art. It's going to be a struggle, but they don't want it to be. So they want to do it perfect and right the first time as if that's going to earn them something extra. Uh, it doesn't. It just moves you forward to the next next thing to do. So maybe you're procrastinating because you're afraid to go forward. Maybe you're procrastinating because you're waiting for something external to come along and kick you in the ass. Maybe you're procrastinating because you really don't want to do it at all. Like it was fun as a fantasy. It was fun as a thought exercise. Wouldn't it be cool if I were a writer? Wouldn't it be cool if I did blah, blah, blah in the same way that I would often say? Wouldn't it be cool if I had like gone to law school wouldn't it have been cool if i you know owned that car these giant out the door fantasy kind of things um that doesn't actually mean i i want to because maybe it would turn into work we talked about this with question number three um it's this idea of it's fun when I don't have any stake in it. It's fun when there's no real like effort attached, but the minute effort shows up and it becomes functionally the same amount of energy as like folding my laundry and mowing the lawn and paying bills. And it becomes one more thing to worry about one more thing to stress over. I don't want to do it. I don't want to deal with it. So I'm not going to do it and I'm not going to deal with it. So procrastination sets in. Maybe you're procrastinating because you've made some kind of strange expectation about how the process is supposed to be as a whole. Like you're procrastinating because, oh, I'm going to be a writer, but first I need to order this keyboard or this kind of chair or that kind of software uh, <clears throat> or this kind of pen or this kind of paper. That is literally an argument I had with somebody that they can only write with a certain pen and they had to order it and it would take weeks as if the other pens they had suddenly had no ink. You don't need those things. Yes, those things may facilitate making the act easier or more pleasurable. Like a chair is comfortable so it doesn't hurt my lower back or my tailbone. My butt doesn't get numb as I do it. That's great. But you could write from your couch. 
which is as one assumes and hopes, comfortable. You could um, type with your existing keyboard. It's not as luxurious as the big thing with the clicking and the macros and the buttons and the and the RGB, but it's still a keyboard. It'll still do the job. You don't have to use that particular software because at the end of the day, you're going to format it from that program to a totally different software anyway. So who cares what software you wrote it in? Sometimes a lot of that stuff is keeping up with the Joneses. I see what everybody else is doing and they seem to be doing okay. So if I do what they do, I'll get their results, which doesn't happen. And sometimes it's a sense of inferiority. If I don't use these things, I'm not as good as someone else who is using them, which is stupid uh, and and wasteful and, and not the point because um, people have all those things all the time and they still don't get done the things they want to do and they still don't accomplish their goals. They still don't try. It's never the equipment. All equipment's there to do is match technique. I want, you know, it doesn't matter... Yeah, we, we need a sharp knife to chop these things to make a good dinner. But if we're looking at, you know, a $30 knife versus uh, a 75 or a $300 knife, yes, there is a difference in the manufacturer and care and whatever. But if you suck at using the knife, it doesn't matter if you've got a $3 knife you got at a garage sale or a several hundred dollar, you know, handmade and folded blacksmith special. It's your technique that's enabled and emboldened by your tools, not the other way around. If you have that software, you have that chair, you have that this and have that that, it's not going to suddenly like make the writing happen. It's just going to make it easier for you to get to the position where you can write. And if you're using that as a barrier instead, oh, I, I can't do this. I don't have the right monitor stand to elevate my monitor the correct number of inches. And I'm not talking like, you know, I needed to elevate that to change, to reduce my neck strain or something. I'm talking like I could get by without this software and do what I need to do, but I'm making this an obstacle because I'm, again, we're going all the way back, scared to move forward. Those are usually the most common reasons for procrastinating. There are so many others, but they so often boil down to that stuff. Usually it's in your head, in your heart, a sense, a feeling, a fear, an expectation, all stuff that can be managed, that can be talked through. And honestly, if you ever really want to see them, like look at them and, and, and appreciate them at a distance, write them down. Something like, I think I need, fill in the blank, in order to be a writer. Like if, if your procrastinating reason is I don't have the right software. Write out the sentence, I think in order to be a good writer, I need to use fill in the blank, whatever it is. And then really look at that sentence and then think about all the books that you think are good books written by people who you think are good authors and wonder if they used that shit. Do you, do you think so? Like if we go way back, right? We go back a hundred years, pre-computer time. Do you think those guys like didn't write because they didn't have Scrivener? Do you think like people didn't like Moby Dick? He he didn't stall on writing Moby Dick because he didn't have, you know, that $800 special lumbar chair from that small company, right? He 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 wrote Moby Dick cuz dude needed to eat. 
loads of different factors for loads of different people can lead to loads of different outcomes. That's just sort of how life works. Your expectations and your plans and your fears all meld together to create reasons or opportunities for you to write. And it comes down to you choosing what it is you're going to permit and propagate and let expand and and breed mentally and emotionally versus what you're going to restrict or excise and what you're willing to cut out of your thinking and your acting. Because at the end of the day, no one gives a fuck about your software. You know, I don't care if you use Scrivener. If you want to traditionally publish, nobody gives a rat's ass about Scrivener. They just want it in a Microsoft Word format because they paid money for a, a large number of licenses for Microsoft Word and it's industry standard. They, they don't care if you wrote it on a 32-inch monitor or a 28-inch monitor. They care that you wrote it. If you're going to self-publish, it doesn't matter if you hand-wrote your first draft using a $35 fountain pen or if you wrote it on you know special acid-free paper. Nobody cares. It doesn't make you inherently better because you used better tools. What makes it better is that you were inspired and your technique is strong. Not that you had a magic special super knife or a magic special super pen or something. It's just tools. And it comes down at the end of the day entirely to attitude, discipline, and skill, all of which can be honed and practiced independent of the tools you have. Now there's a thing in chat. This makes me wonder. I'm going to put it up on the screen because it's real good. This makes me wonder how much of your coaching is more therapy than strictly writing advice. It's probably a lot higher than I realize. Um, honestly, it's a case-by-case basis. On the whole, if we're looking at everybody, I think it's a matter of maybe 70% therapeutic, 70% let's talk about the act of writing and get you set to write, and about 30% writing advice overall if we're averaging everybody. But I have people I work with who are entirely and only writing advice. Hey, this is how this works. Hey, we want to develop this scene. We want to shape it like this. What's this chapter, et cetera, et cetera. And the the, the act, the, the mental process isn't really covered because the mental process isn't really an issue. It's more about like, I have this idea, how do I get it working best on the page? Whereas there are other people who it doesn't matter what we put on the page because they're so far up in their head that, you know, getting them to do 10 words is maybe a month's worth of effort. Three weeks of talking about how there's no pressure and there's no expectation, how there's no, problem that it took this long. They don't have to feel guilty or bad. It's not like they have to make up for it later. It's just, hey, you're going to write and that's going to be great. So every case is different. Every person's different. Every, you know, overall session for even from client to client is different. We might talk about writing for six weeks and then somebody might come up and go on that seventh week. Ah, you know, I'm really feeling kind of stuck. I had this really stressful week. I didn't get any writing done. Can we just talk about getting motivated again? It happens. You want to try and be as dynamic as possible and as flexible as possible. Yeah, there are times when it comes down to, okay, for next week, I need you to write X, whatever it is. But by and large, it's way more important that you meet the need of the person at the time 
and that you create for them an opportunity to be as vulnerable or as willing or as expressive as they can be at the time. And I've had situations where I'm talking to people and I know it's not really about the writing. Like they wrote a thing and it's just okay. We, we worked on a couple commas and took out some passive voice and it's very kind of, yeah, you did good. But what they, what's really at, at issue is something under the surface. And it's just a matter of maybe probing to see if they want to talk about it. Maybe they're feeling pressure because they just saw somebody in a writing group publish a book and they're feeling really inadequate now because they started after the client did and they feel like they're behind. And then we talk about all the things that are incomparable between those two people. But it's a matter of getting a read on the person and and figuring out what best will help them relative to what it is they want to do. But how much is therapy than writing advice? A lot. Certainly a lot more now as I've gotten older and I've been doing it longer. When I first started, it was just writing advice and I really didn't care so much about who the writer was or what they were going through. It was just, hey, you're paying me to help you write this thing better. I, I don't care unless you're like grossly you know, blocked creatively and can't do anything. I don't, I don't care that on Tuesday you had an existential crisis. I'm here for the words on the page. And as I've gotten older, um, I care way more about the person. I care way more about what they're going through and how that's going to impact them as people long before I care about like, Oh man, you're going to go through this you know, like somebody getting married Somebody, you know, breaking up with somebody, moving out, changing something in their life, changing a job, going on vacation. Those things, however mundane or, or dramatic or traumatic, can really affect their lens and tools for creativity. And sometimes, yeah, we end up talking 10 minutes about, you know, you did good in this dialogue scene. And then we spend 50 something minutes on, okay, have you really considered about how you're going to get back to writing after you take three weeks to travel the world? Something like that. It is very interesting how much of writing advice and coaching blends into let's talk about us as people and connect some dots that maybe aren't always about commas and punctuation and word choice. Super interesting to me. That's one of the reasons why I still do this job. Because in an, in an effort to be creative, I think people need to do two things. They need to have... Uh, a view of where they want to go and they need to be willing to take a look at who they are. I think between those two things, more people are willing to look away from themselves at where they want to go. Everybody can come up with an exciting creative idea and not enough time is spent looking at who they are because they, uh, they make blanket assessments like they, they overly self deprecate or they just assume they suck or that they assume they're more wrong than they're right for whatever bullshit reason. And they use that to not look at themselves. And then because they just sort of assume that they're shitty people, they assume that the writing is going to be shitty. And then when the writing turns out to be shitty and they sort of use it as this like self-verifying. It's called a, a feed writer feedback loop. There's a later question, in fact, about writer feedback loops. But um, you get this sense of like, I'm a bad person, so I write poorly. And then you, you have to spend time like working on both things, but you can't work on one thing at a time because you'll freak them out. So you have to kind of like work them both somewhat at the same time. 
you know, you start doing a good job writing, you hype the person up. <coughs> Excuse me. You start hyping the person up and then they start doing better writing. So you work on the writing, then you work on them as a person. And it's this, it's this constantly shifting fluid dynamic problem where we're just moving everybody along at their own pace and their own direction towards their goal while also helping them get a better sense of who they are so that they can go make other art. Because I used to think that the, the whole magic trick of being a really good writer was just to be creative, have so many ideas, make up like a ton of shit. I used to think that that's what all the really good writers do because that's what I saw in their finished work. I saw their creativity. They invented these worlds and these kingdoms and these people and these lasers and this and that and the other. What I later came to realize is that those things they made up came from somewhere. Not like this neuron fired with this brain chemical and it made the thought. That's true. But it was also a matter of like, oh, they had this experience. This happened to them. It affected them. It got them thinking and they wanted to talk about it, but they didn't feel like they could just talk about it like about themselves. So they made up people and they made up situations so that they could explore it and talk about it and deal with it. And once I kind of clicked those pieces together, it changed the entire nature of coaching for me. Uh, I actually have to give credit to, to one guy um, who is never in enough of these chats. Um, Jeff Stormer got me thinking about people as people who happen to be creative as opposed to people who are creative. I guess they're also people. And finding the humanity in their creativity is essential as a coach and essential as a reader because when you take a look at somebody and you see their work, maybe when you're just thinking about, oh, isn't it so cool that they made elves and dwarves and stuff, and then you go back and you read it a little bit more carefully and you realize, oh, that's kind of racist. That's kind of nasty. What does that say about them as a person? Things change. And things grow and evolve. And I realized that was a very long answer to a very straightforward question. But thanks for letting me run at the mouth. I'm going to the next question, though. Question number five. How do I subvert the enemies to lovers trope? Okay, so enemies to lovers is the idea that two people don't like each other. And then through either circumstance or permutation, change in who they are, they fall in love and They maybe retain some element or elements of their animosity, but they also like round off some of the edges because they end up falling in love. And the degree by which they remain enemies is sort of the malleable factor that you can subvert. It's different than a will they or won't they situation because you both you're siding with the characters and you want them to succeed. Whereas if you're manipulating the amount of animosity between them, uh, to put it in simpler terms, rather than just have characters fall in love, they hate fuck each other. Their frustration and irritation with each other suddenly sends them running to each other for physical release. Like, I can't stand you, but you're too attractive. Or there's something about how much I'm irritated to you turns me on. It is a strange quirk of human behavior that we are often attracted to on some level, things that on other levels repel us. You subvert this trope, not by manipulating the situation. That's how a lot of tropes are subverted. Like, 
we turn enemies to lovers, but we make them, you know, uh, we put them in a, in a work situation so that enemies to lovers also becomes boss and, and subordinate. That's a really common one, especially in like Korean story structure or, um, you do enemies to lovers and you cross like generational lines or you cross, I want to say family lines, but I don't mean genealogical. I mean like found family lines. Like you were my ex-wife's husband or um, I, I have feelings for you, but you were the best friend of this person or that person. And it becomes this tense sort of thing. Most people you uh, subvert it by challenging the past, by creating an overly curated backstory to justify like, I hated you in high school, but now like you're hot or something. That's okay. Like it's all right. That's not the end of the world. But if you really wanted to subvert it, you subvert the degree of animosity and you rather than weaken it to make room for more attraction, you solidify some part of it and reduce it elsewhere. So there's always going to be that one thing that pisses me off, but it's that one thing that also really, really turns me on or two things, something like that. You make a little, you, you make a little like core, a little central set of points and everything else kind of gets washed away or softened as over the course of romance. But it's always, there's always still going to be this sense of like, oh, this one thing really bugs me, but it's also endearing because it's the only thing that like abrades my general world. Like I can't stand that you always have to get the last word in, but there's something about that I respect and it attracts me to you. You take this one element and you, you hardline it and then soften everything else. That's, and then the degree by which you manipulate it, that's how you subvert that trope. It is, in my opinion, nowhere near subverted enough. People love it. It's a great trope. It's a great way to write everything from erotica to, you know, uh, LGBTQ plus fiction. It's, it's a wonderful trope with lots of opportunity and lots of utility, but it's just never subverted enough. And it really could be because if you reverse it, so you can take a trope and reverse them. And, and that just means you, you flip it backwards. So lovers to enemies, that's a breakup story. And that's a totally different like type of story than enemies to lovers, which is generally romantic or erotic or comedic, depending on how you want to play it. But by being able to flip it around and understand each component and understand each piece, you can find how you want to subvert it. Also, lover doesn't only have to mean like romantic or sexual partner. Lover could just be two people on the same side. Like enemies to lovers could be uh, a pair of siblings that reconcile because that's still love. It's just not like sexualized or um, a two-hander buddy comedy where you get two people from the opposite sides of the tracks. You get the, the odd couple, a slob and a neat freak or a, a by the book person and a rebel. That's also enemies to lovers somewhat. It's, it's not as intense on the love part of it, but a buddy cop lethal weapon with notorious piece of shit, Mel Gibson. Why couldn't that be enemies to lovers? You've got to soften, when it comes to a trope, you've got to be willing to soften your definition and the rigors of it in order to understand how best you can subvert it. Good question. On we go.
Question six. What would a fantasy novel need to excite me specifically? Well, okay. We have to do a little bit of backstory here. I typically don't like fantasy novels. I work with fantasy authors. I like working with fantasy authors. But for my own pleasure reading, I don't read fantasy. I used to. Uh, I read a lot of fantasy, and I, I just kind of kind of burnt out on it. There are only so many times you can sit in a made-up world that's like sort of monarchistic or like patriarchal and power dominant and like here's a hero they go fight monsters they either are willing to do so or they're new at it or they're you know over it already there's only so many different ways you can do that and with oh i guess they build a party of like unwilling allies who become a found family you keep reading that long enough just casually and it's it sort of stops being fun and that's what happened with me and fantasy novels and I got burnt. Also, when you work with fantasy authors, the last thing you want to do is, for enjoyment, read the same kind of thing you you see at work for eight hours a day. It's it's tiring. Nobody goes from their you know heavy duty data entry job to come home and do more data entry. Sometimes people just want to get away from that stuff. So I have famously gotten away from fantasy novels. When when a fantasy idea comes back and excites me, it's because it's lensed through another medium. Fantasy detective, fantasy noir, fantasy hard-boiled, modern fantasy, magical fantasy, urban fantasy, permutations of the existing idea. That's been exciting to a point. And now, though, uh, I'm, I'm back to that kind of like fantasy is a thing I don't want to put my face on because I've got clients who are writing it, and I spend enough time marinating in their own stuff. But for a fantasy novel to ex- to specifically excite me, what I would look for, hmm, I would look, honestly, at this point, voice. Voice of the author, the decisions they make, the platform and how they wield it, what they want to say and how they want to express it and how they want to paint a picture. Like, okay, it's a monarchistic feudal society and everybody's just cool with being a surf, I guess, for reasons. Sure, okay. But if rather than make it a story about class struggle, you made it a story of... You challenged the ableism inherent in fantasy. Like you picked a dimension that um, doesn't really get talked about. The inherent racism in most people's magic systems. Um, the anti-Semitism in fantasy races and you really said something or did something about it. Like you really took a stand and you really pushed rather than just try to make the most like interesting, interesting rarity of an idea. I don't have magical dragons. I have magical water Buffalo. Maybe that'll get me, but more often than not, what I look for now is somebody saying something, somebody making a point, somebody challenging an idea in a substantial way and then developing a story, not so much around that challenge, but using that challenge to motivate them to write an effective story. That's what would excite me. Great question. I don't know if I'm satisfied with that answer, but it's at least a start for me. All right. Questions, anything about anything. Otherwise I'm just going to keep chugging water and keep moving on. I did not 
put enough bottles of water in the fridge. I should have. I I will correct my error later. All right. All right. Shall we keep moving? Yeah. Let us keep going here. Let me just take this. Slide this. Semi-related to what you just spoke about. What do I like? After all these years, what do I enjoy the most? Genres, themes, archetypes, etc. I am always going to be a sucker, I think, for noir storytelling, whether that's detectives or or, um, amateur detective or um, tragic heroes in that sort of like emotionally worn down way. I've always liked stories that way. I've always liked legal thrillers, even though they get very formulaic. Um, I've always liked them because I think of that. I find that formula very comforting. They develop a case, they develop a plot, they add some obstacles, they overcome them, and it's almost always a dialogue-based climax. I find that really often more satisfying than an action beat climax because it forces you to be able to develop character without them punching somebody. They've got to talk their way through, which means you as the the author have to get on your platform and express how well you understand people. I've always liked that stuff. Um, I, I remain, though, a notorious nonfiction consumer. Biographies, history, um, primarily because... I like putting facts in my head. I find them very comforting and reassuring. But if we're staying in the realm of fiction, I've always appreciated stories where the author took a risk. They wanted to do a thing or or they wanted to get peanut butter and chocolate together in ways they hadn't gone together before. I want to do uh, a fantasy story, but I'm going to make it detectives or I want to do uh, a monster story, but I want to set it in a cyberpunk future or I want to do a romance novel, but I want to do it via time travel. I like those stories where the author has taken a risk because if they can get me on board, then, oh man, I'm, I'm in it for life. I totally, absolutely, positively want to be there because I want to know what's coming next. It's not so much specific to an author, although I find that if an author's got a series and it's in the ballpark of what I like, I will pick up a book or two and take it as far as I'm comfortable until either they like nuke the series or like the books fall off. Um, But by and large, I tend to like risk-taking as a authorial type. I think that's to be commended. I've always been more attracted to that. Theme-wise, now that you've got me thinking about theme, I tend to like themes. I I tend to like stories with underdogs. I tend to like stories with um, unexpected revelation. Uh, That's the idea that uh, we find out a thing that we weren't expecting and we have to sit with it and be okay. Like we thought it was just a straightforward going from A to B story, but then we found this information and now it's still A to B, but B is very radically different. Like, oh my God, I thought this was just a cyberpunk story, but then all of a sudden we discover that the robots are turning us into a food source. Like 
holy shit, how can we possibly live the way we used to live knowing the information we have now? Those themes always really get me. Um, I think because they inspire and encourage change. I like that. I like that a lot. Archetypes. You asked about archetypes. I don't know that I have favorite archetypes. Um, mainly because of the themes, the archetypes come in a lot of different flavors, probably too many for me to think straight about. But if you're an underdog, any archetype where you don't necessarily have a chip on your shoulder, but you're still an underdog, I'm going to go with outside of wrestling. Wrestling throws all this stuff out the window. But um, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I'm into. Uh, although right now I am oh, between three biographies of like all their audiobooks are 60 something hours each and I'm like 10 hours into each one and I'm cycling through given my mood. Uh, I will go back to fiction at some point though for sure. It's sitting there taunting me. I'll get back there. Shall we move forward? Question seven. My editor, not me, uh, really destroyed a major scene in my recent draft. What can I do? Um, I got this question and I promised them I would answer it here as opposed to answering it in the email they asked me to. Uh, although I will respond to your email and write you at length, but depending on the nature of the relationship you have with your editor, there's not necessarily a lot you can do. If this is a freelance editor that you've hired and they, they hacked apart a scene, you don't have to assume that what they've done is permanent or correct. Edits are suggestions. And if you disagree with them, well, then you disagree with them and you are allowed to say, hey, I think you were really harsh in this scene. I need this scene and here's why I'm thinking about needing this scene the way I do. If you are able to contextualize or express it that way as opposed to, oh my God, I don't like the work you did. This sucks. You're bad. If you can give them a why and explain your thinking, then you have an op you have a chance at the editor coming and meeting you halfway and saying, okay, I see where you're trying to go. Let's get you there. Many editors aren't interested in that because many editors just want to do the job, get the paycheck and go away. But there are editors out there who will, you know, meet you halfway and help you try to get better at what you're trying to do uh, while also explaining to you why they did whatever they did to your major scene. Destroyed is a really harsh word. Um, that's a, that's a very emotional word relative to the thing you're making. So I don't know if they destroyed it because they cut like 500 excess words out or if they destroyed it because they deleted the one sentence that made the whole thing like turn a certain way. So I can't say specifically whether or not it was destroyed, but what you can do is go back to them and explain like, Hey, this is what I was going for now in a traditional publishing sense, you can have the same conversation, but I cannot guarantee the flexibility from the editorial side as much as I could from the freelance side. Because from a traditional side, there are factors beyond your writing creative standpoint. There's time constraints, there's budget constraints, there's a need to get the book in a certain shape and, and style for the purpose of marketing down the road. So, destruction at that level 
can still be, you know, a big deal, but you might have less recourse. You can certainly state your objections, but you can't necessarily guarantee that they'll have the time or the opportunity to, to walk back with you and go, okay, you were trying to go here. Here's how we can fix it. Sometimes some of that destruction happens without necessarily your full enthusiastic consent or even knowledge. It depends on the nature of the relationship you have with the editor. It depends on factors outside your writer-editor relationship if you're in traditional publishing spaces. And it also depends on how much you really want to die on this hill. Because what you might say is a major scene because you're very attached to the concepts or the ideas in it, it might not, for the greater, bigger picture, be something that matters. Like you love this scene because you, I don't know, you laughed at your own jokes or you have this really great line or you think you described the the kitchen table really well or something. But if at the end of the day, it doesn't serve the narrative, it doesn't advance the story at a time where the story needs to be advanced or what you're saying is major is not major. It's only major to you because you wrote it, but narratively the, the reader could ditch this and not lose anything then yeah, maybe you need to not die on this hill. And in that case, you got to let your scene be, I still don't like the word, destroyed. Because editors don't really destroy. That's a strange kind of, there's an underlying adversarial undercurrent there. And they're in this to help you. At least the good ones are. There are editors who are there to perform a task and get out of the way. But by and large, it's a service job, and they're, they're there to be of service. So if you are angry at the service they've provided, ask them why they've done it and ask them how you can take the pieces, the shrapnel or the leftovers, and get it more in the way you wanted it to be. Because fundamentally, they're wanting to serve you. They want to serve the story. They want to serve, you know, the next steps in the process, whatever it might be. So you, your best recourse is to talk to them. And if you feel like you can't talk to them, well, don't accept the changes and just move on with your day. That's always an option because edits are still a suggestion. Give that some thought. It's a good question. I hope you work it out with your editor. Question eight, what's the most effective way to use a non-Twitter social media platform? Okay. Um, In the absence of specifying some platforms, the advice has to get a little generic, which is okay if you want specific, if you want a platform specific answer, um, this week's writer's secret weapon uh, over at johnhelpsyouwritebetter.substack.com Uh, link in the video bio or link in the podcast notes. Um, We'll answer it on a more specific platform basis. I was literally writing that last night. The the most effective way to use the platform, whether it's uh, even threads, although threads is hemorrhaging like 80% of its user base now. So if you're looking at something like Blue Sky or you're looking at something like Mastodon or um, Counter Social or Lemmy, or anything like that. The best thing you can do is the same sort of thing you did on Twitter, but to a different degree. Yes, you're still going to have opportunities and moments to talk about the things you're producing, but 
you can get away from the, what's the word I want to use? Corporatization, commercialism of Twitter and use this new platform in this new space to be a person who also happens to be making a thing as opposed to a person who makes things who is also sometimes, you know, talking about other stuff. You want to reverse that dynamic so that you are talking more about your life and how things are going. And Oh, by the way, there's, you know, this stuff. Uh, the reason why you want to do that is because with all the fragmentation between all the different platforms, I'm looking at my phone now and there's one, two, there's five non Twitter ones. That's a lot. I don't, I can't say I use all of them. I use two, but um, yeah, you can use them, but you, you get control back. You get opportunity back. You can better define yourself in a new space. It's refreshing. Take advantage of it. The most effective way is to be a person who occasionally mentions what it is they're writing, knowing that the social media platform should not and cannot and doesn't and does not need to be solely responsible for your entire audience. That worked for old Twitter. That no longer works on Twitter because the algorithm nuked engagement for things. And now it's all about salaciousness and and a variety of emotional vitriol and bullshit. Don't put all your eggs in the, this platform brings me my audience. Don't do it. You'll never be satisfied. It will never work. Fragmentation allows us to explore different elements and different opportunities. Take advantage of that. And then, oh, by the way, let me talk about my work. You will not get the same unified big response, but that's because instead of one big giant platform, you're using like three different smaller ones. So the environment has changed. And I can't say for certain that it's locked into this new mode or this new model, but it's certainly something in flux. And therefore that means you need to be flexible. The most effective way if we're talking well, I'm not sure what effect you mean. Do you mean sales? Because if that's the case, then you, you need to look long form. Newsletter, website, blogging somewhere. Big, old-fashioned concrete deals will always be more effective on that end. Podcast, recording, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to something more dynamic like smaller media platforms. But flexibility here is king bend more stop trying to make every new space like old twitter it's not on we go how do i get my first few signups for my newsletter as a first time author i have to laugh when i see this question because my immediate knee-jerk response is hey if you want signups you need to spend you know go spend nineteen hundred dollars on this one you know grifters class and then you can just end up asking for follows from other students, which is for a lot of uh, bullshit courses, the preferred way of growing your newsletter. You, you take all the people who got suckered by the con job and you make friends. But for those of us who aren't looking to make a fast dollar off of something that doesn't need to be expedited for profit, take a look at the idea that um, your first few signups are important because they get the ball rolling, but they are not more critical than any other signup. And all you need to do is be consistent and disciplined in asking for 
signups and then provide those people a level of content from which you will expand. There's only one way but up. You don't want to plateau early. I'm probably going too abstract. Let's be more concrete about this. Let's say you have this newsletter, and in this newsletter, you plan to always do three sections. You talk about the book in progress. You talk about work that's available. And then you talk about, I don't know, something casual and personal. You know, here's the book I'm working on. Here's where you can buy my other book. Here's a picture of my cat. One, two, three. If that's the best you got and you never plan to deviate from that and you never plan to expand on it too much, reveal too much of yourself, talk too much about your cat, whatever, and you just plan on churning out the same thing like widgets from a factory, your growth will be slow and your growth might be really, really erratic. But as a starting point, you don't want to overwhelm those initial signups because, well, you don't want to overwhelm anybody. But your three sections to get started, over time as you get engaged, engaged, that's not a word, John, as you get engagement from your audience and you see that people respond, yeah, they love to respond to the cat part, but they also really care about, you know, how the new book is going and what it's like to deal with the frustration of writing chapter 11 for the 15th time then you'll start to really get a sense of, oh, I can expand more. So maybe now you're going to go from three sections to four sections because now you're going to talk about like, here's me dealing with writer writer's block. Here's me dealing with the book in progress. Here's where you can buy my old book and here's a picture of my cat. And over time, rather than up front, you start to expand and add more things so that progressive signups get rewarded, I'm making air quotes, over time with more new stuff. And those first signups get not only the pleasure of being in on the ground floor so they get everything, but you build a strong relationship with them through consistency, through conversation, through reaction, through response. You don't just throw this at them and get out of the way, but it comes down to asking, hey, I've got this newsletter. Do you want to sign up? I have a newsletter, johnhelpsyouwritebetter.substack.com. It's the writer's secret weapon. It's a whole big weekly list of writing advice and ideas that you won't find everywhere else. It's not reheated and rehashed stuff. It's not listicles. It's a new thing every week. And sometimes we talk about wrestling and sometimes we go on long rants about AI and other times we, you know, talk about social media platforms. There's loads of different stuff all the time because the space is mine and I can do with it as I like. But in order for me to, to do that, I got to tell you that it's available. And that's the hardest part. Getting over that inertia of, I don't know how to grow this thing. Well, start talking about it. Just start talking. Offer something consistently and grow it over time. But just start talking. Any questions while I continue to hydrate and stop sounding like I've been chewing gravel? Hydration is important, especially on days where you do like a ton of talking. Cool, 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 cool. Questions, anything else we will march on?
All right. Shall we march? Let us march. Question 10. Oh, man, where's that therapy stuff again? Question 10. At what point should I accept that I've written something unpublishable if I'm getting rejected by every agent I query? Okay. Okay. Um, let's define a term. Unpublishable. What you mean is unpublishable traditionally because you could take this book and put it out yourself. You totally could. There's nothing stopping you other than your disinterest in going through all those steps and probably some level of assumption that publishing it yourself somehow is less valid or legitimate a publishing model. If you really think what you've written is unpublishable and you're basing it entirely on rejection, then go write something else. And at what point should you accept it? Right now. This will be that moment. If you're really so eager to tell yourself that you're really bad at this, do it now. Get it over with. Why delay the inevitable? You're so eager to talk shit about yourself. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll wait. I'm just sitting here. I've got plenty of water now. I went over to the counter and got another bottle. Like, I got time. It's not... It's not about a right number. It's not about the right number of rejections before acceptance. It's not about the depth of rejection every time. It's just, hey, how I'm querying is getting me rejected. So let's start with the query. If your query sucks, like a lot, like your query is just a bad query, then it doesn't matter how good the manuscript is because a bad query means a good manuscript won't get read. So step one, let's address the query. Does the query suck? How would you know the query sucks? If you only look at the rejections, yeah, chances are your query's not in great shape, but it's also possible that you've been querying, you know, the wrong people. That's often what we end up telling people in publishing spaces. Keep querying till you find somebody. But that can often feel like, hey, if I keep feeding a, a coin into this slot machine, eventually I'll make all my money back. And I can understand that frustration because it does often feel like I'm pulling the slot machine again. And maybe if I keep doing the same thing over and over, I'll get a different result. I, I know. But step one, let's look at the query. Let's look at the thing we are doing to start this process. If the query isn't a problem and it's the manuscript that's getting rejected, we have to look and see if we're getting any feedback other than the act of rejection to verify our claim. If we're getting notes back from people that are saying things like your protagonist is weak, the plot's too erratic, this, that, or the other, then yeah, we have some actionable intel and we can do something about it. We can, we can make changes to our effort and do something and make our stuff potentially publishable. If you are just getting flat out rejected with no notes and you have no idea if it's the query that's a problem or the manuscript is a problem, then I'm going to suggest we throw everything at the wall one more time. Write a brand new query. Attach it to the manuscript as is or Take a month and rewrite the first 10 pages and make sure that the, 
the new manuscript with new front 10 and a new query goes out just one more time. And if after all that, you're still getting rejected, then yeah, it's time to take the manuscript as it is and put it somewhere out of the way and start on the next one. But only do that if you've, you know, gone through all the other steps. If you've been, you know, working on this manuscript and it's the only manuscript you got and you just got rejected and you've been rejected by every agent you query, but you've only queried two agents total, that's not necessarily an indicator that you're unpublishable. It means you haven't queried enough agents. But that wasn't your question. You didn't ask about how many agents should I be querying at a time. You asked, at what point should I accept that I've written something unpublishable? Which I can't answer because I don't, I haven't seen the thing you're writing. But generally, unpublishable refers to a category of writing that, you know, includes stuff like aggressive sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, patriarchy, misogyny, misogynoir, you know, all the bad shit. If you're book is promoting that, advocating for it, putting a positive spotlight to it, then yeah, you're writing an unpublishable thing. If you're not, if your book doesn't go there or do those things, maybe it's unpublishable because it's just poorly written. In which case, the thing to do if you're ever unsure is go get help. Go have somebody go look at your first 10 pages. Go have somebody go look at your query. And get some feedback, not from like Joe blow down the street, although that can be helpful, but go get professional help. Go get, go find a writing coach, go find an editor, get some feedback, get some pro help and see if that changes anything. And if that doesn't work, then yes, except that you've written everything unpublishable. You'll never get published and it's time to go eat worms and kick rocks and live down by the river under the bridge. But only do that after you've exhausted all the other possibilities. Good question. Question 11. What can writers learn from YouTubers and vice versa? Okay, I watch a lot of YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube because YouTube's really interesting, and YouTube is now functionally as popular, if not more so, than TV was popular back when we were kids. YouTubers, particularly the people who put like a camera on their face and start talking, uh, they can teach us a lot. They can teach us about technology. And I don't just mean like the topics of their videos. I mean like the composition and the way they build them, the platform, what they do and how they do it and how often they do it and how well they do it and how poorly they started doing it versus how well they do it down the road. Now, a lot of those factors are influenced by money. They get sponsors, they get brand deals, they get influencer you know, weight and cred, and that certainly impacts things. But by and large, a YouTuber can teach a writer how to be persistent. A YouTuber can teach a writer how to be disciplined. A YouTuber can teach a writer about how to be expressive. They might not teach you language. They might not say, hey, the best way to write a radial sentence is to do this, or the best way to use a semicolon is that. But they'll at least demonstrate to a writer how to put themselves out there and take an emotional, vulnerable risk. That's important. We like those. They help our writing. They also can highlight for us 
weaknesses in presentation, how we talk about what it is we talk about, where that marketing comes in, where that querying knowledge comes in, your comfort at talking about what you're doing so that it isn't just, here's my story and it's about these two people and they do things, but who you are as a person who made that story and getting over that fear of looking at a camera or talking into a microphone can help us be more comfortable speaking objectively about our subjective work. If we flip it around, writers can teach YouTubers quite a bit, like how to write a coherent fucking sentence. Because there are a lot of YouTubers who are engaging, but ultimately very shallow in their expression. They want to throw a lot of memes and a lot of sound effects, and they want to cater to a a fast edit, low attention span audience. But if they were to just take a hot second and fucking be a person to say a thing, they'd probably grow their, they'd probably get some engagement. They'd probably do more than just get a bruh in the comments and move on with their day. Writers can teach YouTubers how to compose better thoughts. Writers can teach YouTubers about a certain level of developing an idea. A YouTuber can, not always, but can sort of fragment an idea because they know they have to operate within a certain parameter of time in order for maximum metrics and algorithmic engagement. But a writer isn't bound by that. A writer just has a word count or a genre expectation, and they can take a paragraph or a sentence and develop out an idea as they want. YouTubers have a window of between 10 and 31 minutes in order to really get engagement relative to their audience. So a writer can teach a YouTuber how to better use space to say what they want to say and how to compose and organize an argument and thought and description more effectively, whereas a YouTuber can teach a writer that every sentence is a camera because of the camera. You go look at like a tech YouTuber who's shooting B-roll about new things and they've got flashing lights and, and like a light hip-hop track underneath and the slow movement of the camera. Think about how you would describe that in words. Think about how when somebody is you know sitting at the desk and they're, they're looking dead at the camera and they're talking about this event or that event going on or this thing or that thing, how would you express that as exposition? Look at the dispensation of their craft and compare it to your craft and see what tools you're both using. Now, granted, you're going to use them in different ways, but look for the overlap. And that's where you can figure out what each will teach the other. Oh, we both use a a sense of setup and payoff. We both use... Uh, some level of visuals and metaphors. We both use, you know, casual language, whatever it might be. But then we also see discrepancies. Oh, well, you guys use way too many emoji or you use way too many long ass fucking sentences that repeat yourself. Find the common ground and then pay attention to how you're both affecting the reader or viewer. And you'll see that a lot of YouTubers could be writers And a lot of writers could be YouTubers, though it's not a one-to-one universal thing. But do not not dismiss the other form of media just because it isn't the one you like. Give it a try. It's worth it. Question 12, the question I had mentioned earlier. How can I build a better writer feedback loop? That writer feedback loop is the idea of this is how I think and this is what I believe. And therefore, it affects what I do. And the results I get of what I do reinforces how I think and feel. And it cycles from there. So a writer feedback loop where it's like, 
I think writing is hard and I suck at it, so I don't necessarily try very hard because I assume I'm not doing very well, means I have an output where I'm not doing very well, and then I get discouraged, and then I stay discouraged, so I don't do very well over and over and over again. Or something more positive. Now, the danger with the positive is that you skew toxic. Oh my God, golly gee, everything is swell, and there's no problem whatsoever. That that shit's awful. Hey, gang, or... Um, if, if you're a white woman, you might start to appropriate other people's vernacular English. You know, what up, fam? I don't know, Doris or Susan. You tell me what is up. But you have this idea, you have this notion of um, what you tell yourself, how you talk to yourself, how you relate to and how you regard your positives and negatives over the course of the day, how well something went, how poorly something went, how you feel about this coming up, how you don't feel about that coming up, and how you talk to yourself about going through the day may be related to how well you perform doing the tasks of the day, but it may also be related to how you view those tasks in hindsight. So for instance, let's use me as an example. I'm talking into this microphone right now and we're almost done because we're on question 12 of 13. When I'm done this, I'm going to turn off the microphone and go load this up to YouTube and put out the audio as a podcast. And then I'm probably going to go like sit on the couch for, you know, half an hour because I've been talking all day and this stuff is actually draining and stressful simultaneously for me. And I, I could use some quiet and then I'll regroup and I'll go back to work. But if I start hammering away that, oh man, only one person was here. Oh man, I, I only, uh, on Monday's podcast, I know I only got like 12 people. Oh, I didn't, I didn't do this. Oh, it was my birthday Monday and it sucked. Oh, I didn't get this. I didn't see many butts on the internet this week. Whatever negative thing I choose to grab onto and tell myself is a given. In the same way that that previous question said, I've been rejected everywhere. I must be unpublishable. If I start hammering at the negatives and highlighting them to the detriment of the positives, like, hey, I made a cake for myself because I wanted cake. Or, you know, I had some really great nachos today and there's a root beer in the fridge. Or, you know, I did a really good job even though there was only one person here. If I choose to minimize the positives and make the negatives larger, I set myself up so that my effort, no matter how huge it is or great it is, is colored by the negative I bring to it to begin with. So you can build a better feedback loop, not by overestimating your skill, not by hyper-highlighting the positive and denying that the negative exists, but you can build a better feedback loop by admitting that, yeah, negative exists. I'm scared. I don't know how today is going to go. I don't know if the newsletter I'm writing for Thursday is going to be any good. I don't know if I'm going to be able to juggle all these things I have to juggle. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. There's bills. I'm, you know, paychecks haven't come in. Negative, 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 negative. If I carry those and I'm not able to put them to the one side or I'm using them to force my actions in a certain way, oh my God, nobody's nobody's clicking on my podcast. I better write something salacious or say something shocking. If I start letting my negative influence my action more than just have it be a thing I'm carrying when I turn the microphone on or when I sit down to write, then... I'm setting myself up not so much to succeed, but just to sort of endure. 
and then I won't shake off that negative and it'll seem persistent. And all that's really doing is just entrenching more and more. And you want to liberate yourself from that. You want to pry that away, like peeling up with a pry bar old paint off of something. You want to, you want to give yourself a little bit of breathing room. So to do that, go look for your positives. Write them down. I, I am a huge uh, advocate of making a list for everything, whether it's a list of the 10 things I've done well today or the four successes I did or three things I'm grateful for or the 11 things I find really interesting about this person I have a crush on or the five things I'm most looking forward to after 4 p.m., whatever it might be, make a list and see if you can express the positives and the negatives of whatever your lists are and see them honestly. Here are the things I'm worried about today. Here are the things I'm hopeful for today. And if the hopeful things don't work out, well, I'm still allowed to be hopeful for them. But how you talk to yourself and how you lens the world and how you engage with these things set up a feedback loop that help you or harm you when it comes to being creative. If I sit here and tell myself that everything sucked, that I had one person and I've been talking for 90 minutes and it, it isn't going very well, I, I still have to go write more of that newsletter for Thursday. I'm about to tell myself, well, it's fucking pointless because it's not going to work. If I'm sitting here thinking more about how bad this went, as opposed to I was able to sit down and give really like deep answers because I didn't feel pressure to talk to an audience. How you talk to yourself matters. What you say to yourself matters. Where you choose to put your focus on as you do whatever it is you're doing matters. You build a better feedback loop, not by denying the negative, but by better appreciating the positive along with understanding the negative, seeing what is temporary, seeing what is malleable, fungible, changeable, and then doing something about it. It is hard as fuck. I don't know how else to describe it. I am bad at it, but I'm working on it. I'm really trying. It's an everyday practice. And some days I'm better at it than others. But you build a better feedback loop by trying. Recognize your pieces. Appreciate them. Be grateful for them. Make an effort to change the ones you want to change. And just keep going. That's how you do it. And lastly, one more mouthful of water. Hang on. Can I get an I'm done writing, it's time to publish pep talk? Yeah, sure. Here we go. Let me just move my chair forward and get up on this microphone, and I will talk right to you. Good job writing. Good job finishing. Do you know that about 80% of the people who ever start writing something don't get as far as you've gotten? Have you celebrated that lately? Have you stopped and taken a minute and appreciated it because that would be awesome if you did that. Good job finishing. Good job being done writing. Now it's time to publish and I bet you're scared because there's a million different things that come with this. If you're going to publish traditionally, we got to figure out who you're going to get, you know, what pimp you want to get represented by or if you're going to do it, you know, unsolicited or who you're going to query or how you're going to query or are you just going to write or are you just going to like give it to the first fly-by-night bullshit company or are you going to fold it up and throw it out the window paper airplane style and hope it reaches one of the big four 
Or what about your cover? Or what about an editor? Or what about marketing it yourself? And there's all these different things that seem so super different from how things felt when you were just writing the thing. It is totally, positively, one billion, bajillion percent okay to be scared right now. I get it. I'd be scared too. But you have talked about, probably, in the past, how important it is that you go forward. That writing was one thing, but you really want this book on a shelf. You really want this book in somebody's hands. It doesn't matter if we're talking about a physical product because you want to destroy some trees and kill the environment or whether we're talking about something digital. It doesn't matter if we're talking, you know, I needed to go through this avenue or get repped by this pimp or do this or this specifically, or if you just want it done. It, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're not going to get that. You're not going to reach that point. You're not going to do those things without you first trying to get there. You can't fly without flapping your arms. So it's time to flap your arms. And we're going to do this one step at a time in an organized way. You don't have to do it all today. It doesn't have to all be right today. But today is a great day for a first step. Today is a great day for, hey, I'm going to go do this thing. So what's your first step? Collect information. Why is that the first step? Because that's the first step for everything. Collect information and make decisions. How do I want to publish it? What does it mean to publish it the way I want to publish it? What do I need to do? If I go traditional, what do I need? You need representation, which means you're going to need a query letter. If you publish it yourself, you got to figure out where you're going to publish it. Do you want to go to Amazon? Do you want to go somewhere else? If I go to Amazon, what do I need to do? I probably should get it edited. Okay, that means I need to get an editor. You know, I need to cover, so I should probably look for a cover designer. Little things like that. And I'm going to call them little, even though they by themselves individually are big things. They're, they're still little because they're just one further step um, of many steps towards your goal. But it is time to get to your goal. Now, you could take a break. There's nothing wrong with that. You could absolutely stop and take a break. Nothing wrong with that. Catch your breath. Take a week off. Take a month off. Go have some cookies. Get laid. Have a drink. Go on vacation. Stick your feet in the ocean. I, you do whatever the fuck you want to do. You're a grown-ass human. Go enjoy. But remember, you have talked about this thing being important. And while it might seem big and complicated with lots of steps, everything, every marathon is, is one, not in mile-long strides, but in single steps. And we're going to think about this in just single steps. doesn't matter if other people are talking like 5, 10, 15, 20 things at a time. Fuck them. Who the fuck are they? What do they know? What do we know? One step at a time. Organization and decision making is step number one. Then once we figure out what we want to do and we figure out what we need to do to go accomplish that, we're going to start. Not start learning about how to do it perfect because some of the best learning we're going to do is on the fly and learning as we go is part of this process. So rather than sit down and try to master writing the query letter, just start writing. Get some help along the way. Just start writing. Just like you started writing before, we're just going to keep writing. Practice your query letter, practice your marketing, practice your pitch, and make incremental progress forward. Nothing big, nothing huge, just one step at a time. And when you get stuck and when you don't know what to do, come back, ask more questions, get some help. But just one step at a time is enough. 
No one is demanding that, okay, you finished your book on Monday. Here's Tuesday. It's time to publish. Your book better be in my hand on Wednesday. No one's saying that. That's It, it has never worked that way unless you like go to make a photocopy of every single page and then like staple your book together. But no one's expecting it to be anything other than your best effort every step of the way. Not perfect effort. Just do your best one step at a time. Figure out your steps. See if you can take one, not today, not urgently, not as quickly as possible, but see if you'll take that first step soon. And then after you do that first step and sit with the consequences, what's the second step? Can we do that after we do the first one? Soon. Not immediately, not urgently. Sometimes it's going to have to be because of circumstance, but not always. But we're only going to do this one step at a time. Just one. You've taken steps this whole time. We wrote one page, then another, one scene, then another, one chapter, then another. We did one step at a time until the book was done, right? Well, now the book is done in one form. Now it's time to take it in another form and get it done too. One step at a time. You can do this. You've been saying it's important, so it's time to treat it like it's important. And you can do this. Because some parts of this are going to come down to asking, hey, can you edit my book? <clears throat> or, hey, who, what, what kind of cover should I have? Those are creative decisions. They're contingent on other people. That's different than all those times, all those nights, all those mornings, all those afternoons where you had to sit and figure out what happens in chapter 15. <coughs> Some of this stuff's easy. Like, oh, shit, I got to put page numbers on this thing. You can knock that out in seconds. There's a button in Word to do it. And that's an accomplishment. And maybe that's enough book writing for the day. I put page numbers in. Fuck you. I'm done. That's okay. You can do that. You're in charge. One step at a time. You can do this. And when you get stuck, ask for help. I'll be happy to help. Anytime. Every time. And yes, if you need an editor, hi, I'm right here. I'll help you out. Just ask. That's all you got to do is ask. You can do that. You're good enough. So one step at a time. Get to stepping. You can do it. Good question. Is there anything else before we get out of here for the day? Before I completely shred my voice. Anything else? Anybody? Anything? Otherwise, we'll get out of here. Shall we go to the outro? All right. We're going to that outro. Here we go. Why are we not going to the outro? I pressed the button. Oh, no. I pressed the wrong button. Sorry. Wait, 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 wait. What button did I press? I don't know. Anyway, back to the outro. I'll deal with that later. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for checking this out. I really appreciated it. 
It meant a lot. These questions were great. They made me happy. I hope you're doing it. I hope you're enjoying this. I hope you did enjoy this. I hope to see you later this week. If you are a Patreon person, uh, look forward to my first ever or my first in a very long time redo. We're going back and recovering Tenet. That'll be exciting. Um, if, by the way, you want to support this show and everything else I do and get, you know, free stuff in your inbox every week, patreon.com slash John helps you write back. If you want in-depth writing advice, like weekly at length, John helps you write better.substack.com, the writer's secret weapon. And if you want individual help to personally make your book the best it can be, that includes editing. John helps you write better.com. Click the button, schedule an appointment. I'll be more than happy to help you do whatever it is you want to do from coaching to clearing to marketing to publishing to editing. To you name it, I help you do it. Thank you so much for being here. All power to all people. Take good care of yourself. Love yourself. Do something good for yourself. Look at the world around you and remember that it is absolutely positively okay and very cool to give a shit about things. Thank you so much for being here. It means the world to me. Thank you for your belated birthday wishes. My birthday was yesterday, the 7th. It was nice. Really and truly it was. And I look forward to whatever good, fun, exciting, stupid, weird, crazy things happen this coming week and i will talk to you uh the next time i'm here in your ears and in your face will be uh next week uh august 15th right back here on twitch although don't be surprised if later this week there's something on youtube that pops up you know just because but that's for later all right i'm getting out of here have a good one i'll talk to you soon see ya